Welcome everybody. Hello. I'm so happy that you're here to join us. I am Tracy Ellis Ross. I am many things, um, but I am the CEO, founder, and majority owner of Pattern Hair Care, Pattern Beauty. Um, I'm an actress. I'm an American citizen. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. And this is Inheritance. It's a panel hosted by Color of Change, where we will discuss how to support hair love and small black beauty businesses. I'm joined by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, um, who I call one of my friends, Representative Herod, and um, Arisha Hatch, the Vice President of Color of Change, who have all led and supported efforts to find hair to fight hair discrimination through the Crown Act. And by the end of this panel, who will all be my friends? Um, this is a really important and necessary conversation. Black hair is a portal into our souls, and we think. Um, we think of uh, the maps of freedom that were hidden in our braids. Angela Davis and her Afro as a symbol of pride and revolution. Frederick Douglass, um, his hair as an expression of prosperity and perseverance against all odds. Black hair has been at the center of economic, political, and cultural revolutions. And hairstyle discrimination is an economic and civil rights issue. Grooming policies are arbitrarily enforced to prevent access to academic and economic opportunities for the black community, a way to further negate who we are and where we come from. And the Crown Act is an essential policy, safeguarding the existence, dignity, and humanity of black people. Many people have dealt with hair discrimination in the workplace and at schools. Only a month ago, UPS finally ended their ban on natural, natu natural black hairstyles. And there is still so much work to be done because hair discrimination is race discrimination. We have massaged love into our roots as a ritual of resistance and we are inheriting um, the legacy of who we are. So let's just dive in. Let's ask some questions of these three extraordinary women who um, are doing really good and important work. So the Crown Act conversation um, is a, an important one for us to have. And I know a lot of people don't know about um, all of it, but each of you is an advocate for national, a national standard on hair discrimination ban. Can you expand on the everyday prejudice, prejudices and their effect on the black community? Who wants to start that one? Go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, it's wonderful to be at this virtual table with all of you and um, you know, it's just been our experience uh, as black folk that uh, there has been uh, so much trauma and hurt and harm that has been codified in lawmaking that this is an opportunity for us to, um, to codify you know, liberation, uh, to codify justice, uh, to uh, liberate us to show up as our most authentic selves. Every black woman has a story of hair discrimination has a story of hair discrimination, as do many black men and non-binary folks. You know, you have the overt in public cases, like a school just outside of my district that suspended two sisters for wearing braids. But then you have the coded language about what's professional and appropriate. In fact, if you were to do a quick Google Im image search of unprofessional uh, hairstyles, most of those images would be uh, black women. So I think it's, you know, we're here today because of the number, because for too long, this has become a conflated part of our experience. 
um, as black folks and in particular as black women. And, you know, I currently am rocking a different kind of crown because of my alopecia. But when I was a candidate for Congress, there were many within our home community uh, who tried to dissuade and discourage me from wearing my hair in a protective hairstyle of Senegalese twists because they feared that it would be um, a barrier uh, to my success as a candidate. Does anyone yeah. else want to talk? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's happening uh, across the country, you know, of course. And the reason why the Crown Act is so important is because there are so many people who feel like they can't be themselves in the workplace or at school or even in housing because of their hair. And that's not okay. Um, and it really struck home for me uh, when I was actually speaking about passing the Crown Act to a group of people and a mother stepped up and said, my son used your bill to talk to me about being able to wear his dreadlocks. And I love him and he looks amazing, but I don't want him to be discriminated against. And I don't want him to wear his hair like that because he will not go far in his higher education. And to me, that struck me as the reason why the bill needs to exist, because we need more people who are able to wear their natural hair and who wear their hair however they choose to. I mean, in Colorado, we put a lot of things in the bill, protective styles, everything in the bill, because we wanted to make sure that people had the freedom to do so. But that mom is not going to feel safe or comfortable with her son wearing his dreadlocks until more people do right? Until people start changing not only their rules and laws and policies, but their culture and recognize their discrimination. And I think the conversation around the Crown Act actually helps people to recognize their own discrimination. I was going to say, I think that's one of, that's a great example of how policy influences culture and culture influences policy and that they work hand in hand and the change doesn't happen without both. Um, were you going to say something, Arisha? Yeah, that's exactly what I love about the Crown Act. Uh, when we first started talking about it here and sending emails to our members at Color of Change, people, some people were like, yes, we need this. It's about time. And a lot of folks, some of our ally members were just shocked at how basic this idea was. Um, and like the other said, every black person has a story of hair discrimination. I remember being in law school and about to take a job at this corporate law firm and I was wearing box braids at the time and was told, well, you know, you're gonna have to go out of box braids during the summer. And I was like, go out of box braids during the summer? Who would, that makes no logical sense for me whatsoever. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of the times at Color of Change, we talk about both the written and the unwritten rules. The written rules being laws that are passed and the unwritten rules that we just talk about all the time. And Black people have been policed around their hair. Women are policed around their hair and their bodies generally. And so that's why I think it's so important to like write this down on paper um, in this moment so that people understand that we're unwilling to go back to those conversations I was having five, 10 years ago uh, with my law professor about you know, how I could show up on the first day of work. You know, what's interesting is, you know, the three of you are very versed in policy and how it influences culture and the importance of it to protect us. But I know as a somebody who is not as um, versed and understanding of it, it's actually really important. You, I think there's so many of us that don't realize how policy actually makes your world safe or makes uh, the possibility for freedom or selfhood um, safe. 
And so I think that's another reason that this is incredibly important. Like, I do think people are like, I don't understand. Why would you have to make, you know, uh, have a crown act, a policy around how you wear your hair? Like, you get to wear your hair however you want to. It's like, no, you actually don't. And I think so often, which we'll talk about in the second half, but um, it, it creates a very specific barrier, a way to keep a particular kind of person out of spaces. Um, out of education, abil ability to get educated in the way you want or the corporate world or whatever that is because of these ideas of professionalism and how we don't match. So a question that I have is many states are still so hesitant um, to act upon these injustices in this way. What do you think, Leslie, are some of the sort of what are the barriers and what are the action steps that need to be taken and how can the community get involved? You know, not just from your perspective, um, what, is, what is it that we can do? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying something that should be very obvious, which is elect black women, because it was black women who led this bill through Colorado and through the entire country. So elect black women um, and then tell black stories. So for me, the thing that really struck me in Colorado, the reason why I brought the bill forward was because a young girl was a cheerleader at East High School in my district and was told she could not cheer if she couldn't get her ponytail to look like her white counterpart's ponytail, okay? Now, I was a cheerleader, okay? And I know that that exact same thing happened to me, but now I'm in power. Now I'm in office and I can make it so that thing have never happened to another young woman or another young girl ever again. So that's why I started doing research on the Crown Act, because sometimes we don't even know that the discrimination that's happening against us can be outlawed, and it can and should. And so we brought that bill forward in Colorado because of that. But then what we did was interesting. We had a Black caucus hearing where we invited members of the community to come and speak specifically to and about the Crown Act to Black legislators, okay, where people felt comfortable, because these buildings these legislative buildings do not feel safe for Black people, right? They are designed to keep people out. And even in that design, we were told that we could not, I could not have people come into the hearing room wearing t-shirts with people with afros on them because that was, um, that was problematic and too political. And I was like, that's the whole problem. My hair is not political, you know? We need to take that down. And so we brought people in to tell their stories. And I have never seen that this many Black people in the building. It was full. And in that moment, when we told our stories, other members would come in, other members are legislators, other white members would come in and listen. And they were like, wait a minute, we had no idea that this was happening to so many people. We had no idea, we read the bill and thought maybe it was a joke. But now we understand the trauma that it's causing because we're hearing it from so many different members of the community. And then the most beautiful thing that happened was it wasn't just black folks, it was brown folks, it was Native American people, it was Asian folks who were all talking about their hair discrimination as well. And so then we went into the hearing room and it was chaired by a member of the Black Caucus, a Black man who has a daughter and a son who feel like they should be able to wear their hair however they want to, okay? And so the bill moved forward through Colorado because of that. And I wanna make it clear that right now, the courts without this bill have said that hair discrimination is not racial discrimination. But we all know that it is, right? We all know that it is. And so we have to change the law to ban this type of discrimination if we wanna make sure that it doesn't exist in this country anymore. And so we passed the bill in Colorado because of that. And the governor signed the bill because he said very clearly that hair discrimination is a proxy for racial discrimination and it's time to ban it once and for all. 
Um, I, I'm going to ask another question, but you said one thing that I'd like to um, ask you to clarify a little bit. You said that hair is not political. I think, is it, is it more that hair shouldn't be political, but because of the discrimination right now it is? Because right now an act yeah, of work, yeah. You know, like it shouldn't, Absolutely. it shouldn't be inherently political, right? Like it shouldn't okay. be inherently political, but it is. I mean, my blackness walking into the building is it's political. political. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be. You know, like with, with my uh, hair company, one of the things that I say often is we are not inherently a social justice organization, but a company that celebrates black beauty is inherently political because of what we live in. So we are trying to get to a place where it's not, where it's just beauty. Um, but because of the systems of inequity that exist, that is what's there. I'm going to move to the next question, even though I know, Ayana, I know you had something to say there. I could feel it. I do. <laughs> you want to say it or do you want me to ask the next question? I mean, I'll try to, we can, you ask the question and I'll, I'll hit a little bit. You'll merge it. You'll merge it. You'll merge it. Okay. Um, far too often we hear political conversations about racial justice in the context of slavery and Jim Crow laws. Um, Ayana, what are some of the inequities in our society today that the Crown Act would immediately address? And how do we shift the conversation from righting past wrongs to implementing systemic change? Sure. Well, so I'll, I'll get at that by beginning. Okay. First, I just want to acknowledge that when we talk about being a super voter, this is what we mean in terms of impact participating in every election, right? So we have Leslie, we have that leadership on the state level, and then the federal uh, level is, is parroting and building capacity on that which started on the state level. So I just wanted to offer that to speak to the power, uh, one, of storytelling, the role that that plays in movement building, why mm -hmm. it's important that people amplify their lived experience, you know, whether what, in whatever um, injustice is showing up, that we not accept that as a conflated part of our identity. Um, because very often these injustices are, um, they're systemic because they're structural. And so they have to be actively uh, dismantled. When people say something is, is cultural, well, what is culture? It's human behavior. So it can be changed. And sometimes it is incentivized to change uh, based upon lawmaking. And so the fact that we see, um, you know, Leslie as the, um, uh, the originator of this, the steward of this, um, and then the federal level taking our cues at a time against a national reckoning on racial injustice, while we have an unprecedented number of black women serving who, by the way, uh, many are wearing their hair in uh, sister locks and, and locks and, and dreadlocks and twists and Afros. Um, and so it's the, the confluence of those things um, has created, instead of a, a perfect storm, I guess, a, a perfect liberation. And that's mm -hmm. the moment that I think we have to be in right now, as I've said to you many times before, Tracy, that, you know, thank you for your Black Lives Matter tweet, but the only receipts that matter now are policies and budgets. This mm -hmm. is the time to replace our oppression with liberation and our trauma with healing. So at the end of the day, every policy issue can be a racial justice issue. The promise of true freedom, liberation, and equality is about economic justice and housing justice and reproductive justice, and the list goes on. So what the Crown Act does is it would codify in law that employers cannot discriminate on the basis of hairstyle. 
and it explicitly names ethnocentric styles that we know are often discriminated against. And, and then I'll close here by saying that this is a, I see this as, um, as a civil rights legislation. It's really building upon the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Each of these bills have moved us closer to a more just society. So until we make specific and codify in law on um, discriminatory hiring, firing and discipline practices, folks are just navigating this violence daily. And here's the thing, they have no recourse. So previously we accepted this as a conflated part of our, our experience just as black folks. And we're just very uh, navigating these hostilities, these microaggressions, overt discrimination. And if you did speak up, there was no recourse. And so that's what this changes. Oh, you ladies are just so smart. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I feel like, you know, my human experience gets to be, um, I get to navigate it in a particular way. And I um, channel a lot of my uh, experience through storytelling, right? Like that's, that's where mine is. But to have conversations with you all who are navigating it in this realm of policy and um, recourse and creating that kind of justice, is, it's really, um, it's exciting to me. I feel like I wish I had gotten this excited when I was in school learning, but maybe I just didn't have teachers that were as great as you guys. So, <laughs> okay, I'm you taking notes. Too. You teach us too, to be clear. Well, you know, I think that's the exchange and that's the beauty of it. Um, this question I think actually leads perfectly out of what you just said. Um, in terms of, uh, so it's long overdue and necessary, the Crown Act, um, in this process towards equality, which you were really just talking about, Ayana. And, and um, it's encouraging to see that Color of Change is doing this kind of work in all these different spaces and moving us forward. But looking into the corporate practices and incentives that are usually used to encourage companies and workers are usually financial, right? Or like a title promotion, which often undermines the purpose. Right. So if we're asking people to giving them incentive to create more diversity and inclusion in their uh, the, the whatever they oversee, the group they oversee. And the response is you get more money or you get a new title that totally defeats the purpose. So how do we support genuinely support corporations in deepening their understanding of systemic equality? And what are some concrete asks that we can make of corporate entities, um, you know, like UPS just now coming around the corner. What are some of those asks, um, Arisha, that we can start doing um, in that arena? Tell us. Hey, uh, you know, corporate power is incredibly important to color of change. Um, and I think to our generation, it's not just elected officials uh, that are making policy or shaping culture, mm -hmm. uh, global corporate also have a huge influence on everything that's happening and definitely in the middle of the uprisings this summer in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder and Ahmaud Aubrey so many murders uh, many corporations were speaking up for the first time posting Black Lives Matter on their Instagrams donating money uh, to different um, organizations making commitments around diversity and a lot of people not just court people, but also corporations, allies, were saying, what can we do? Like, what can I actually do? And what we did at Color of Change was try to ask people 
people to take an internal look. Like, I think if you're an ally, if you're not a Black person, you can assess all the ways in which you have power uh, to shape the lives of Black people. And so we asked corporations from across the country to make a pledge to go beyond the statement, to commit to a civil rights audit that uh, not only wow. looked at, um, you know, internal diversity numbers and how you're doing on that front, but also asking the corporations to examine the impacts of their products um, or their services on the lives of Black people and to make those corrections. We see companies doing environmental impact reports, you know, on yeah. how much pollution their company creates. Uh, racism is a form of pollution that should be evaluated. There should be caps put on it. Um, you should have to pay extra taxes if you go beyond it, uh, beyond your cap. Um, and so uh, that's what we're asking corporations for the first time, not in a targeted, we're mad at you and we're going to run a campaign against you. But if you really care about Black people, volunteer to do this and go through this process, which is going to be difficult. It's going to bring up a lot of questions. It's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to have to set some new goals and make some changes. Uh, but it is within your power. And so we're asking you to exert your power in that way uh, as we work towards uh, more substantial legislative changes at the local, state, and federal level, uh, we can create momentum by changing corporate practices across the country. Um, that's really helpful. And I I'm just going to repeat that because I thought that was really powerful, that racism is a form of pollution. Um, and I do think, you know, um, it's one of those, not invisible, but we've lived with it so long. Um, and I was just thinking of what you were saying, um, Ayana, you articulated it so beautifully and I couldn't repeat that in the way you did, but this idea that, um, that we not see that and conflate it into our own identity and experience, that we name it and know it as what it is. Um, and that's why the pollution metaphor is so yeah, telling hit, because it's sort of like it's something Mm-hmm. Something you, you can't see, we're all living with, we're sort of making it work um, and sort of working around it. And some spaces and areas are more polluted than others. Um, some people are more affected by that pollution. Um, so that's a really helpful uh, metaphor that I will use beyond this moment. Did any of you, I, when I see nodding heads, I feel like that means you would have something to say. Um, do, you, do you have anything you wanted to add while we're right in this in this intersection of conversation? Well, I'll just add that the, the corporate responsibility is so important because, you know, when we have the Crown Act testimony in Colorado, um, we heard from judges, we've heard from doctors, we heard from lawyers, but what I think was most compelling was um, someone who worked at, um, I think it was like Hertz or car rental place, right? And um, they were not making as much money. They needed the money to survive and they're, boss said that you have to cut your dreadlocks if you want this promotion, you know? And so a lot of times it is as, as clear as that, but he had to make the money, you know what I mean? They didn't have the, op the option to just leave, which a lot of people think, well, if they don't accept you for who you are, then just go somewhere else. That's not an option for everyone. And that's no. why we have to really get at changing the laws because the remedy, right, the tax that now we can apply on corporations who don't abide by the law, the remedies in the law are basically that that person can sue and, and, and recuperate all of their um, lost wages, right? So that they don't have to make a determination between their own financial stability and their hair, because that's absurd. 
you know? And so that's what we're really trying to do here. And again, it starts with the young folks too, because this is happening in our schools as well. And not just to the kids, but to the teachers. The, the school is a workplace, you know? Um, and so we had to pull all of that together because there are people who don't have the option to just turn around and walk away or say, I'm going to go somewhere where they accept me. And it shouldn't exist in any, in any corporation or any business. And I think the turning point too, another another turning point in Colorado was when the businesses came on, the chambers came on, um, the different corporations that were headquartered in Colorado came on and said, we've already put this in place at our workplace and we actually demand that you hold us accountable if anyone in our business actually breaks the law and discriminates against someone because of their hair. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't believe in this either. And that came from the top. And I believe that that was really important too. So corporations are down with it now. I mean, at least publicly. And if they're going to publicly say it, then we better put it in law. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While the support is there. Yeah. I would just, I just have, I have a leaf blower. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're fine. We're fine. Okay. It's yeah. loud on my end. <laughs> Very well um, articulated, uh, Leslie, and I think it just also makes the point, you know, of sort of the um, the black tax, which is not just that of, because um, I want to speak a little bit about sort of the emotional toll that that takes and how that undermines your self-expression, your uh, self-agency, your self-determination, uh, your self-esteem, you know, uh, you know, there's a reason why we're declaring racism a public health emergency and it's not just for the ways in which it's uh, embedded and shows up in our healthcare system, but because it actually takes a toll on people's mental and physical well-being. Um, you know, I, in the city uh, of Boston, which is in the district that I represent, I remember they did a, um, a study with parents asking them on a scale of one to 10, how bad was their child's asthma? And every parent in, this, in the survey, black parents, put their child um, at like a three to five, and they were actually at a nine to 10. I'm using that metaphorically just to say that th that's called the weathering effect, you know, where you are experiencing, you know, something at, at great harm, but it's become so normalized, you don't even realize. And that's the impact of the Crown Act. I mean, just how em people were so emotional because they did not understand how heavy they had been. And Leslie, to your point, it's not just about that impact on self-esteem um, or uh, how it undermines your ethnic pride, but it can affect um, your ability to earn. So there's a, there's a, there's a loss of, of wages and economic impact as well. Um, the weathering effect, there's a couple of really key things that are being said here that I will leave with. Um, I think that's another really great example. Or, or uh, the, the, the metaphor that I use is wallpaper. There's these things that are on the wallpaper of our lives, right? That we just, you don't even notice them anymore, but they're affecting you or you've figured out a way to kind of pretzel or twist yourself so that that thing doesn't affect you or you just never look in that direction when you should have every right to look in every direction and yeah. not be hurt by a thing that is on your left or your right every day when you walk to work, you know, um, or in your home. And so, um, and, but you start to get used to it and you just make it work, you know? Um, and I think more and more we are figuring out as human beings that we shouldn't have to do that. You know, maybe when you were young, Leslie, and you were told that your ponytail had to move around the same way your other cheerleaders did, 
there was not a word for discrimination that you could call on, that you could reach to, or no one in your life that could say to you, that is actually not okay. You know, um, and so I think it is important, both in storytelling, in representing, in um, electing black women into office and getting our representation in all of these different places that we get to see and have other people in our lives that can point out these things so that we don't have to wear the emotional toll to let ourselves have, um, not have that weight so that we can experience liberation and. Um, what was the word you used? Determination? That you have self-determination and agency. Yeah, just, yeah, and agency. Yeah, so. Your own life. Um, so we appreciate you. Color of change. Just thank you so much. Thank you just for what you all are doing every day. I love that, you know, I'll be in touch about this civil rights audit. I got a, a lot of ideas, a lot of folks that need to be doing that, but just um, thank you all so much. And, you know, I will say also that this conversation came about because, um, I didn't completely understand the Crown Act. And so I picked up the phone and called Rashad. And um, we had a conversation. I had questions about it. And then as he was talking to me, I was like, I want to do something so that this information can spread further and we can really talk about what it is and what it means. And here we are. So um, yes, like this is this is what it looks like. I will close out with this. First, I want to say that it is an honor to sit and gather um, with a group of Black women and have a conversation that is important and necessary about the Crown Act and about our hair and our selfhood and our beingness and who we are and how that manifests in our physicality. Um, and I, I think I want to end with this idea that how do we genuinely support each other in changing, as was just explained, this definition that um, culture is, I wrote it down, culture human is behavior. human behavior. Um, how do we really support each other, others, even those that seem to be on the other end of the support, the allyship, the understanding, um, in changing that mindset and policy and generating a culture of calling people in instead of calling them out. Um, if we wanna close with that, because there's so much about um, cancel culture and all of that, that doesn't really leave a lot of space for growth. Um, it leaves a lot of space for defending oneself. And sometimes I do believe that people should be canceled, um, but there's also a lot of wanting to <laughs> call people in for a learning space um, and a healing space. So if each of you want to kind of talk a little bit about that as we close out. I want to hear Arisha's wisdom on that. I, what I try to remind myself of each day is that we have to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily believe in cancel culture, but I do believe people need to go to timeout and be reflective yeah. and when they've made mistakes. And sometimes people are, you know, we often separate intention from impact. And I think that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes intention does matter. Sometimes people misspeak and can correct themselves quickly. Sometimes there's like, sometimes there's a gap in learning. Um, when we started working on the Crown Act, you know, people, even our own members would say like, Black people are getting killed by police officers in the streets, um, as if this was like an either or sort of conversation. Like we can't work on all of these things together because they add up to a culture that 
isn't hospitable to us, that fears us, that doesn't think we're competent. Like it's all a part um, of the same piece. And then I also found that in talking to people, it's pointing out the little things. It's pointing out the little things about hair discrimination. It's um, when I was in elementary school and I was on the dance team, they had, they made us wear pink tights. And my mom was always like, well, why don't you just wear the tan tights that make more sense? But it was like, we had to wear pink tights or going to movies and seeing the black person or the other person of color killed first. It's like those little things that signal to people what's appropriate and what's not. Um, and so we have to keep ha being in conversation about those little things as obnoxious as it is to have to explain ourselves so many times. Yeah, and I'll just, um, I'll just say thank you to Color of Change for bringing this conversation forward. I remember when I was a student activist with Rashad uh, and he had his long locks and he was fighting back then in Colorado. Great to be here. He had long locks. <laughs> I've got some photos if you need them. Um, uh, <laughs> but it's also important just to, I, I agree, meet people where they are. Um, I feel like ignorance can go two directions to defensiveness or understanding. And so it's our, it's my job, I believe, to help move folks to understanding. And a lot of that is, is, is also understanding where they come from, right? They are not typically black women, right? So they might not understand the situation. We've got to get there through storytelling, right? We've got to have that conversation. And sometimes we have to allow people to work through their own stuff, you know, um, as they move in the direction of understanding this bill. And I saw that happen in Colorado. I saw it happen before my eyes with, with white male conservative and democratic members who didn't think this mattered. Um, but when they heard it from a young girl or they heard it from an 85 year old woman, right? Um, they realized it really does have this impact and it has a lasting impact. And before we go, I have to thank Tracy and Ayana. Like you guys are so inspirational to me and so many others. I use your products, um, Ayana. Like I have your picture up in my office because you are such an inspiration. I love all the policy that you're working on. And I know that we're gonna be able to pass this Crown Act nationally together. Everyone who's watching this, get up, reach out to your elected official. If you're the, you are the elected official, introduce the bill and let's get this passed because it will matter for generations to come. Thank you. That's really. Anna, do you want to close with anything? Just gratitude. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I am so grateful um, to each of you, uh, Ayana, Arisha, and Leslie, for joining us today to lend your expertise, for your hearts, for your minds, and your persistent work to ensure that the Crown Act is passed on a federal level. Howard, this is part two of this incredible inheritance conversation. I think that's a really good title. Um, and now we are moving to our, our part of this conversation that is about small black businesses. Um, our nation is in a critical moment of reckoning with racial justice and COVID-19 and severe socioeconomic inequality um, that cannot wait any longer. We live in an economy built upon the systemic oppression of the black community and the negative impact of COVID-19 has only exacerbated the severe socioeconomic inequity. So as we fight for legislation, we can see that thousands of black businesses are especially hard hit by COVID-19 and the lack of adequate relief programs for these small businesses um, leaves a real vulnerability. And for this part of the conversation, we are joined by Jennifer Lord, um, author and founder of Natural Natural Hollywood LLC in Mississippi. In, in Mississippi? 
In Brooklyn, New York. I was going to say in Brooklyn, New York. I thought that's what I just asked you. I'm like, I've gone crazy. And Thomasina <laughs> Jackson, who is owner of the New Image Hair Salon in Virginia. Hi, Thomasina. Hi. <laughs> and Arisha Hatch, the VP of Color of Change. So, so thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Let's just jump in to how COVID-19 pandemic has amplified economic inequalities for small black business owners. And I can start with Jennifer. Um, how has the pandemic affected you and your business in this past several months? And what has been your experience with the federal small business relief programs throughout the pandemic? So the pandemic um, affected me in good ways and bad. And I think that's a common theme for a lot of small businesses and just people in general. But for me specifically, um, I actually went back to school last year. So I had just broken into the theater industry and gotten my debut at Hades Town on Broadway at the end of 2019. And everything was just working out beautifully. I got opportunity after opportunity. And then in, I think I would say March, I got the opportunity to be a hair supervisor on a play. Yay, right? That was great. Super excited. Everything I wanted to happen was happening except COVID happened right after that. I literally signed my contract for the position and then um, the next day Broadway was shut down. So that ended that. Um, I think at first I was in shock and then I was annoyed and pissed like everyone else. But then I just took some time to kind of figure out how to pivot. And I had been working on a project, my coffee table book in time, which celebrates beautiful natural hair, all the beautiful black beauty that we possess with our natural tresses. So I use this as an opportunity to put all of my energy and focus into completing that project and self-publishing my coffee table book. So that was the silver lining for me. As far, um, as, though, as, far as what you talked about in terms of economic support through the government um, financially, I applied for like 24 grants. And I didn't qualify because like I explained to you, I had to show I was in school last year. I was in cosmetology school getting my license because that's required for you to join the union. And unfortunately, because I was in school full time, I really wasn't working that much. So when I did my taxes, it didn't qualify me for any of these relief programs that are available to small businesses. So I thought that was an interesting take on it. Like it would have been great if they would have considered maybe my business for the last five years, then maybe I would have qualified for more relief. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Thomasina, did you have something to say on that subject and that question? I thought I couldn't tell. So, were... um, so I, I will, I will say on my business in for as uh, COVID um, shutting down the business, I was closed for three months and um, where some clients have come back and others have not because they're not comfortable at this time um, as to coming back. Older clients, those who, who are at a higher risk or they tend to love one or someone at home, um, they just haven't come back into the salon at this point yet. And as far as um, relief. I did apply for different grants. The first round of um, grants that went out, 
the business had to uh, make a certain amount of money, not not the number of years that you have been in business, but you had to have at least 250000 or more a year was for the first, first grant that went out that I applied for. Um, then I applied for two other grants outside of that grant for the county. And I haven't heard back yet because what they did was they revitalized the grant and changed their standards of the dollar amount, and they wanted all small business to apply. So it's been over a month, and I haven't heard back from, from the county with that grant. Can I ask you a question? A um, couple things. Yes. Technically. So in that first few months when you were shut down, um, mm -hmm. how were you surviving, and what did that specifically mean for your business? That meant your doors were completely closed, right? That's correct. The doors were completely closed. And once the doors were completely closed, I applied for unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, and unemployment took forever to get because there were so many people that applied for unemployment that it took over a month to get unemployment. Um, but I finally got it once the month had went away. So it, it took some time. It, it took a long time to get it. And so because it, it, sorry, please continue. I'm sorry. Because even with unemployment, you will call the numbers, submit. They wouldn't answer. The phone lines were tied up. The unemployment was, was really bad. Um, just trying to get in touch with somebody, filling out forms, to even get the money. Mm -hmm. That uh, the people that I know, uh, family members and friends, it was the same here in California and in New York, that it was just very, very difficult to get in touch with anybody, let alone mm -hmm. to, and then the it was very confusing, the process in terms of unemployment. Yes. It's just all of the different ways to go. It was just very confusing and not easy to figure out. And then you had, you said that it was, your business had to be, have made 250,000 a year. So as an average yearly income as a business, that's what it would have to be. Is that, um, did, uh, without getting to, did that put you, is that sort of across the board? And does that mean, so if your business makes less than $250,000, then you are not eligible for a grant of any kind? For that particular grant, I was not eligible for. So then they came back and read and had more money to send out and they um, changed the qualification. And when they changed the qualification, According to that, I could apply, but at this time, I have not heard back. So I ask you those specific questions because for anyone and Arisha, I just think this is the reality of what, and I think humanizing and connecting the um, experience and story to the reality of what this is for the majority of people small owned businesses and small owned black businesses and, and what we need to do to support that and change that experience. Um, I think it's really important for people to hear what it really is. Absolutely. And I think we, uh, as we all have gone through different versions of the shelter in place, what's really interesting is how 
an essential worker is now being redefined. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought about my hairdresser as an essential worker, but I'm like, it's pretty high on my essential list. Um, and what we're seeing is that so many of the things that are now deemed essential uh, are uh, industries that are led by Black people. They're industries that are led by people of color, working class people who have the, the thinnest social safety net, who actually need that next paycheck uh, in order to put food on the table. And uh, we didn't see a response at the time. Hopefully, it will continue to get better. Uh, but we didn't see a response at the time that actually thought about uh, Black people, working class people, small Black businesses. Um, and so one of the things, we did a survey uh, of uh, thousands of Black and Latino-owned businesses in the aftermath of the first shelters in place uh, during the pandemic. And what we saw was that, for the most part, small Black businesses, small uh, Hispanic businesses, did not get any of the relief from the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, And it's because the law wasn't written for them. So many Black businesses didn't even qualify because they were sole proprietorships. Um, You know, there are some people that own salons, they own multiple salons, and they have employees. Um, A lot of, if you think about your hairdresser, usually it's just her. Um, and maybe she has a chair somewhere. And so that wouldn't even qualify um, uh, for this initial relief program. The other thing that we saw is that because the money was administered through the banks, a previous like credit really mattered and your relationship with your bank really mattered. And we know, we've known that there are disparities there uh, for Black people and for other people of color. And so as we look towards future legislation, because this pandemic is going to be ongoing and the uh, impacts and effects of this pandemic will last long before everyone is vaccinated, will last long after everyone is vaccinated. Um, uh, we actually have to keep in mind the most marginalized, marginalized set of folks uh, so that we actually can get uh, laws passed that actually help people and get the money mm-hmm. where it's needed. Yeah, uh, one of the things that um, I read that I thought was really key that I'd like to state as a fact right now is that Black-owned businesses not only generate billions of dollars for the economy annually and create thousands of jobs, they also provide critical avenues of upward mobility and independence for Black people. And I think that, you know, Thomasina, as I hear you talking, like that, that is where... um, it, it not only helps individuals, but it helps the economy as a whole. And I think people um, aren't look at it, looking at it quite in that way. And I also really have to say, particularly um, on the heels of the conversation we had before this around the Crown Act, hair care is self-care. Self-care is something that you bring into everything that you do. So yes, in a shelter in place, like what is essential, but we have to look at what is essential in terms of the actual human experience and who we are as people and how we have to present ourselves in the world and what that means to our self-esteem and our ability to do our jobs, take care of our families, love ourselves and love each other and how that allows us to be um, impactful parts of society. Um, or members of society. Jennifer, were you about to say something? I thought you had a thought. I could feel your thought, I thought. <laughs> well, there, the thoughts I have were just about the fact that we that I applied for so many grants and I wasn't qualified. Same as Thomasina and just kind of being frustrated that um, whatever being a sole proprietorship or the creative things that I was doing for whatever reason 
wasn't making me qualifiable for the support that I obviously needed because my industry was literally shut down and, you know, Broadway isn't set to open back up until September of 2021. So wow. there are yep. so many people in that industry specifically who are just literally out of work and have to figure out another way to survive. And we're not necessarily getting any relief from our local government either. You know, the laws and the expectation is that we just survive and figure it out. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the administration intends to do to support specifically that industry because they weren't even addressed. We weren't even addressed in terms of the thousands of people who are out of work. Television has just recently started working again. So there are a few people who were able to get into that. But again, my experience was unique in that I had just broken in. I had not made it into the union yet. So I can't work in television yet unless an opportunity arises. And it's frustrating to see that, you know, there's nothing being actually done about that. And I don't qualify because I wasn't making enough money, kind of like, you know, Thomasina mentioned. It's really interesting to think that you don't qualify because you're not making enough money. It seems that that would be the reason you qualify. Yeah. It, it's, it seems in, from a logic standpoint that that would make you more qualified to get the support that you need. Um, findings also indicate that only 37% of black small business owners received the amount of assistance that they requested, despite being more likely to apply. Um, so just adding that sort of the larger context um, of what you are a part of, that you are not alone. And in the last conversation that we just had, um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley said that so often we conflate what is happening systemically into our own identities and our own experiences as if it is personal to you. And so um, the reminder, you know, and having conversations like this, I think open up our field of view so that we know that you are a part of and experiencing something that is systemic that is affecting you, not that that alleviates your own personal experience and your personal um, struggle that is happening, but it does give you a bigger context that it's not personal and it doesn't mean you are doing something wrong. And I think that's why we wanna have these kinds of conversations and why we're so grateful to Color of Change for continuing to be a mouthpiece in, in numerous ways. Um, pushing for policy and, and change in those areas, but also connecting the threads and the dots between the actual human experience and how we create change and affect change. Um, let's see. I actually would like, uh, Jennifer, it's, a, it's not off topic, but we, before this conversation started, we started a little bit in in having this conversation about texture discrimination and um, what that means within the industry. And I think there's, um, there's a lot of importance to the reality of our stories and how they affect the businesses that we are in, um, particularly you as a hairstylist um, or artist in, um, in, on Broadway, and then you, Thomasina, in your um, um, care of hair. Um, within the community that you're in and how that really impacts on a larger scale. So do you both wanna talk about in this time where you're not working um, or not working with the regularity that you should be and were before, what it is, if you can articulate what it is particularly that you do and how that um, really impacts those that you touch? 
and the importance of it. Because I think that's at the core of this, right? Is what you do and how it really touches people and the importance of your work. Thomasina, can you still hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Tracy. Do you want to start? Yes. So when we're talking about textures, are you, are you referencing with the texture, different textures of hair and how um, businesses will like to see us? Is that what you're um, referencing to Tracy? No, I'm actually, the, the texture question, uh, texture part of what I asked was for Jennifer. Um, but I think for you, I would love for you to describe what it is you do and how you understand the impact of your work um, with those that you touch. Yes. So what I do is I'm a full service hair salon. I specialize in natural hair care. Um, as well as I do alternative stuff, as well as relaxers, um, weaves. So my, my range, um, it varies. And my clients are in different professions. Um, and it's important for them to look a certain way when they're going to work. Um, even though some of them are working from home, they still want that salon experience, and it's like a getaway for them just to come to the salon to interact. It's like relaxing and fulfilling for them. So my clients, um, we have discussions about their days, things that are going in their, on in their lives. So I have relationship with my clients as well as I'm just their stylist. And I've been in this business for over 16 years. And I love what I do, and I love my clients. And just them not being able to come in just to, for a small thing where they didn't think a hairstylist was essential. We're essential in so many ways, even on a mental piece as somewhere they can come and they can unwind and know it's safe, as well as getting their hair done. So that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, interacting with my clients. I thank you. That was so important, and it almost brought tears to my eyes, because as a Black woman, um, I grew up in a hair salon, and uh, I just, I do know the importance of that safety and that, um, that time. And I think all of us identify, and I think it, it anchors this conversation and the reality of what we're talking about. I mean, Thomasina brought up so many things for me. Um, you know, black beauty salons. I just remember you would go when you'd spend all Saturday there and it yep. was part of the community and that's where you get all your news. Um, it's actually, I don't really miss that now that we have to go in one by one, um, cause you can kind of like get in and get out, you know, they put you under the dryer for hours, even though, you know, you were ready. Um, but it was, it was just, it's a, it's a community experience. Our hair is a community experience and going to salons, um, is so much a part of our culture. Um, and I think, 
you know, it also brought up for me because I often do think about getting my hair as like part of my mental health care and well-being, although there are, you know, actual experts in mental health. But I think that's connected to the fact that uh, our bodies are so policed and so politicized. We sometimes talk in my industry about respectability politics um, and how how you look and how you show up is a form of protection in so many different ways. Uh, uh, and it's very much I've experienced in the workplace how it's connected to your livelihood, your ability to be taken seriously or get promotions. Not that that's right, um, but to, to have that all sort of stripped away um, uh, you know, I, it, 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 it was hard, not only for the business owners, but also for um, the folks that have made this a part, you know, have made salons and have made hair culture a part of their everyday lives um, to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I thank you for connecting those dots because I think it's incredibly important. And I think um, so much of how women um, and particularly black women have to present themselves as a way, uh, as an armor um, to navigate the reality of the racism that we live in, um, in order to, to sort of be at a space of safety, uh, let alone thriving. Um, I think we underestimate what it means to take that away and how, and, and, and the importance of these spaces and what they do in our communities and for the livelihood of the communities, both for the business owner and those people that benefit from being able to go there. Jennifer, um, I wanted you to answer that question as well. Um, you talked a little bit about the impact of texture and I wanted to just share, I know I mentioned earlier that I went to cosmetology school last year but that wasn't the first time I went. I went many years ago, right out of college. And after completing 11 out of 1200 hours in Baltimore, Maryland school, unfortunately I did do a petition to address the way that they were negatively speaking of natural hair. Um, it was a full body of black students. Everyone had a relaxer or a weave, but I was the only woman who had a natural hairstyle. And, you know, it wasn't as popular yet. We didn't have YouTube and Facebook yet, but I was proudly rocking my natural. And um, I did a petition for us to work on textured hair mannequins, and I was asked to leave the school. So fast forward, I go to cosmetology school last year, and guess what? They skipped over the one chapter that discusses our natural hair texture. So just in terms of how texture impacts us, if the hairstylists aren't being educated about our hair type, then there isn't, it's kind of silly to expect them to know how to do it if we don't even honor it and provide the truth about it. And so I teamed up with another Broadway hairstylist named Jamie and we created a petition. It's called Teach Black Hair in Cosmetology Schools. Through Color of Change, the platform has been amazing and we were able to garner over 41K signatures. And we're addressing this issue of not talking about our hair and the truth about our hair in cosmetology schools so that all stylists have an understanding and a basic knowledge of how to deal with our hair and also how to respect our hair and see our hair for what it is, which is beautiful. Uh, 
um, yes, I am so grateful for that in my industry, which is connected to your industry in television and film. There is a lot of um, ignorance around natural hair, uh, black hair, how to care for it, um, how to respect it, how to honor it, um, and how to do it how to style it. <laughs> and um, so I'm grateful that you're bringing that forward. And I think, you know, back to the conversation that we're having about small business um, and how COVID has really impacted it in such an intense way, it's exacerbated and um, shine light on inequity that has already existed, right. you know, but now we are in a position where um, people are really struggling um, and businesses are closing and folding and that upward mobility that I spoke about and um, and sort of that movement, that sense of agency in one's own life to take the thing that you do that is a business and allow that to continue growing, to bring wealth back into your life and your community's life has re really been severely impacted in COVID. And um, so um, Arisha, Along with the ongoing challenges of systemic racism, what other obstacles do you see that exacerbate financial inequities um, uh, experienced by, black, by the black community? And can you speak to why, it's, why specifically it's so important for us to support black businesses, especially as we walk into the holidays? Sure, and I think we've seen so many examples just through Jennifer and Thomasina that reflect what other small business owners are experiencing. For Jennifer, it was really like a dream deferred um, and you know, put on delay uh, because of the pandemic. And you know, we won't even begin to count the number of people that were just starting businesses but didn't get them off. Maybe they're just opening a restaurant but didn't get it off before the pandemic really hit um, and will never really recover. What we saw as we surveyed black businesses because our communities were so hard hit that actually like black business owners and Hispanic business owners were more responsible than white business owners. They kept their businesses closed because they had people in their households who were high risk uh, and in a way that white business owners didn't do. Um, you know, we also just saw, you know, there are established businesses like Thomasina's that had to be able to shut down for months. And I don't know that any, uh, so many people in our community are living paycheck to paycheck. So few people are prepared to just shut down their income for months. Um, and so we will, although we're heading towards a vaccine, hopefully um, very soon for everyone, we will feel the ramifications of this last almost year now uh, of this pandemic for a while there are businesses that will never recover um will could never survive uh this sort of storm um one in addition and, and that so that requires a few things that requires some a lot of this could have been avoided if we had a competent government response and we have to continue to to demand uh that at the federal state and local level uh, that we are supporting small businesses. We can't just have a government that only supports the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world, these globalized corporations that are putting small businesses out of, um, out of business every single day. Um, you know, let's just all pray Amazon doesn't figure out, out how to do hair. Um, uh, you know, because um, they're taking over every other industry. Um, and we deserve to have a government that supports small businesses even outside of a pandemic. 
So this conversation shouldn't end. That's We should be investing in our people. And then the, the final thing that I think we've been thinking about a lot at Color of Change is, yes, we demand a government response that's competent uh, and sustainable, but uh, there are things that we can do as a Black community to encourage investment in Black businesses. So many people, so many non-Black people this summer in the aftermath of George Floyd's death were saying, support Black businesses, buy Black. One of the things that we're doing is trying to hold people's feet to the fire to that commitment um, beyond just posting cool things on their Instagram or, or Twitter. And so we're starting the Black Business Green Book, which is going to be what we believe eventually one of the largest lists of Black businesses um, in the country. And we want to begin to talk to people about if you're really about the movement for Black Lives, if you're really about Black Lives Matter, then one of the things that you can do is buy Black and support Black, and it might require more intentionality because we have less resources to market. Uh, but uh, with some additional intentionality, you can actually support Black families by supporting our businesses. That's really helpful. Um, and I think that's helpful for people to hear beyond an Instagram post um, and the reminder of what the actual impact of supporting and buying Black does. Um, and I just want to repeat this fact because I think it's really key is that um, black owned businesses not only generate billions of dollars for the economy annually and create thousands of jobs, they also provide critical avenues of upward mobility and independence for black people. I think that's just a really key bit of information that helps people understand this is not it's it there's a real impact for all of us in supporting us in this way. Um, I'm so grateful for your time, ladies, Thomasina and Jennifer and Arisha. This has been a lovely conversation. Is there anything you would like to say before we close out and before I say thank you and goodbye? Thank you, Tracy, for having my salon on. It meant so much to be a part of this um, and for us to be heard. Um, and I just, you know, pray that we'll get through these times and that the business will thrive like they were before. Um, I pray that too. And I, I really do hope that you get the support that you need and that the community that you serve so beautifully gets to continue benefiting from your care and from having a safe space to go and also to get beautified and cared for um, by you, Thomasina. Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> Um, Jennifer, did you want to say something? I just wanted to say thank you, Tracy, and thank you, Arisha, for giving me the opportunity to speak um, about my perspective as a stylist in the industry and share some of my story, and also just bringing light to the value of supporting small Black businesses like myself, especially during this time um, where there is no other income for me in my industry, having the opportunity to talk about my coffee table book and encouraging people to support that and buy that means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Um, just have a great day. I don't know what time it is over there, but it's evening in Brooklyn. So have a wonderful rest of your day, ladies. I wish the same to you. And so to learn um, more about how to protect small black businesses, go to Color of Change web Color of Change's website, theblackresponse.org. 
and signed the petition to tell Congress protect Black businesses during the COVID-19 outbreak. Also submit your favorite Black businesses to Color of Change's Black Business Green Book, which Arisha told us about that I'm so excited about. It's a directory where you can find Black businesses to support for the holiday season and beyond. Um, let's all continue to support Black business, to continue to support each other, to be good to ourselves and each other. And Arisha and Color of Change, I'm so grateful that we've been able to have this conversation today for calling me in um, on this conversation. And uh, I wish everybody a beautiful holiday season. May you stay safe and wear your mask. Bye, Tracy. Bye, Thank Arisha. you, ladies. Thank you so much.